Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, and without further ado, Kristen Newman is a television writer who has worked in Hollywood for almost 20 years. She's written for That 70s Show, Chuck, and How I Met Your Mother. She currently writes for ABC's The Neighbors. Here she is to discuss her new book, What I Was Doing While You Were Breeding. Oh, The Neighbors was so canceled, guys. It was really canceled. It's not writing for that anymore. But Debbie used to, too. She's awesome. Um, but uh, I did spend the day listening to Alan Menken sing music, who wrote all the great Disney musicals. He sat in our office. I'm writing a new show called Gallivant that he's going to write music for. So check that out. Um, so a lot of the people in the room know me, but I'm supposed to tell a little scoop for the people who don't. Uh, so the general gist has been writing sitcoms for about 20 years. Sitcoms are rooms full of boys. They are noisy, they are stinky, they are loud, they make fun of you, they make you cry if you're an only child who's never had older brothers who make fun of you. Um, and uh, I would escape that for a few weeks or months every year to go travel. And luckily I had a job. My first job was that 70s show, which went for seven years. And so I had uh, places to come back to come to work to. So I got to take time and run around and, uh, and have travel adventures. So while all these adventures were happening, I was also very um, much running away from getting married. Everybody around me was starting to get married. I was very afraid of it. I thought it sounded great to like be with somebody forever and maybe at like 50 after some babies, like maybe do some sort of hippie ceremony on a ranch. But marriage sounded like something that you did when you were done. Like when you were done living, when you were done exploring, when you were like done growing, when you were ready to like give up. Like that's what you did. Right? Is that resonating? <laughs> so I ran away from it very, uh, very aggressively. And I would have these escapes to other countries. And so everybody was telling me to write them down while they were happening, all these stories I was having and I was telling at dinner parties, uh, but it, uh, it was mostly just journaling going on as it happened. But I, uh, I kind of kept going, kept traveling, kept having adventures, and then about three years ago, I met this dude in a pink shirt uh, who I married three weeks ago. Oh, wow. And yeah. And, uh, and he had two kids. Now it was scary. And uh, the same month I met them, my, my evil stepmother died. And uh, it left behind three little half-siblings who were little, uh, who I loved, and who then didn't have a mother. And uh, our father was pretty elderly and uh, not in great shape. And so I kind of felt like I got five kids in the same month. And so I started furiously writing down my single girl stories, like the way you scrapbook, because it's over. Um, and I thought it was going to be a couple stories that I would use to get a sitcom job, because I'd written some essays that had gotten me work in the past. 
and then it was lots of pages and it seemed to have uh, a narrative that you know I wanted to just really write funny stories about trips but it started to tell the story of my life in these trips and there was finally a final chapter that it looked like I was coming towards and I started writing a lot about my dead stepmother and what it meant to me to think about becoming a stepmother myself the same month that I lost her and um, and it, it all of a sudden had a had a narrative as a book. Uh, so I sat down and, and, and wrote all of the book. So that is sort of the story to give you enough background to, I think, read a couple stories. Um, what's happening, uh, the book came out a week ago, right? So the internet trolls are all starting. So that's exciting. Already I got my first tweet from someone that just was like, aren't black people the worst? <laughs> that was upsetting. I don't know, I blocked her. I don't know who that was. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, it's interesting. When people think this book is going to be Eat, Pray, Love, they decide I'm super shallow and just was kind of slutty and uh, hedonistic. And no matter how many times I talk about how lucky I am and my, how lucky my life is, they're like, why does she expect all of us to be able to travel and not? They're very mad. But if you come to it expecting funny stories, I think you think maybe there's some good stuff in there that's not just funny. So uh, I'm going to just read a funny story because hopefully you will just come at it from that perspective and then you'll find me super deep once you read it. Uh, so this is a story about Russia. I've got another little bit about Brazil. Well, sort of, I'm supposed to ask you if you want to hear more reading or if you want to ask me questions later. So keep that in mind. Tell me if you're bored or not, if you want to move on to talking. Uh, this is the story of my first time that I went abroad and successfully found a international romance. I used 9-11 to rationalize cheating. I'm not proud of it, but it's important that you know that. And I'd like you to read the following story, hear the following story, through a nine months after 9-11 lens. Remember that time? We were all a little more grateful for life, a little less sure of the future, right? Remember? Yeah, I know, it just sucked. But unfortunately, my, my first actual success at a vacation romance was also my first and only time cheating. It was on a trip to Russia two years into my relationship with Trevor, to whom I now offer a heartfelt apology. I was about to turn 29, sex in the city was at its peak, and I didn't really understand a word of it. I'd never been single as an adult. I couldn't speak with Carrie-like authority about the difference between 20 and 30-something men. I couldn't entertain a dinner party with stories of ridiculous things I'd done to find love. I'd never had bad dates or good dates. Really, I'd never had any dates, because my last decade had been spent in two almost back-to-back -back relationships with guys who had first been, first been close friends of mine. In both cases, we'd gotten drunk one night, kissed, said I love you, and then been together for several years. <laughs> so I was starting to wonder if I'd just never have crazy single girl experiences, which felt like I was choosing to skip a vital life experience, like seeing Paris or having a child, the memory, memory of which would comfort and entertain me as I lay in my old lady bed, knowing that I had really done it. Anyway, there I was living with a depressed, unemployed man whom I loved but was not going to marry, when my oldest friend Sasha invited me on a trip to Russia. She was going with her mother on what would be their first time back since they fled Russia to give Sasha a better life 26 years earlier. I jumped on the chance to travel to Russia with Russians and off we went. On the plane, we practiced speaking Russian. This did not actually mean speaking Russian. It just meant speaking English with a Russian attitude, <laughs> i.e. dramatic and full of impending doom. 
<laughs> My guidebook told me that the national anthem for Ukraine translated roughly to, we have not yet died. <laughs> that was the, it's, it has more meaning now, doesn't it? <laughs> that was the most victorious and optimistic they sh version they could come up with. When Russians meet, they're nice to meet you, literally translates to, how many years? How many winters? Why couldn't it at least be summers? It's all very dramatic and dark in Russia. So when we were practicing Russian, Sasha and I would translate, enjoy your meal, into, I hope you don't choke and leave your family devastated. <laughs> Have a nice day became, today, try to forget this world is gray and bleak, etc. I did ask Sasha's mother how to say, have a nice day, in Russian, but she just frowned and said, we don't really say that. <laughs> My Russian lover was a bartender. He had sharp, exquisite Russian features, floppy, shiny, dark hair, and deep, tortured Russian eyes. I met him one night when Sasha and I went to his bar for a drink, where I looked into those eyes and cooed, Vodka tonica, which is Russian for vodka tonic. I said it with a great accent. I love him, was all I could say to Sasha. Love is a way easier word to use out of the country. Sasha started speaking to him in Russian, and they chatted for a couple of minutes while I drank, smiling and nodding whenever Oleg would look my way with those freaking eyes. After a couple of minutes, Sasha turned to me. This is Oleg. I told him you like him. He likes you too. You have a date with him tomorrow night. <laughs> Don't say no because you're not going to marry Trevor anyway, which means you're going to be single someday soon, which means it would be stupid to not go out with a Russian in Russia. <laughs> Sasha could make a great point. I blushed, and I like reached out his hand. I put my hand in his, and he squeezed it. Privet, Kristinska. Hello, my little Kristen. How many years? How many winters? <laughs> Sweet Jesus. On the night of my big date, Sasha and I hitched a ride to the bar where we would meet. As wildly dangerous as that sounds and felt, that's how you got around Russia. There weren't enough taxis by a long shot, and so you just raised your hand, and then someone would pull over, ask you where you wanted to go, and tell you how much they would charge to take you there. Lots of people needed rides, and everyone who wasn't in the mob or the government, same people, needed extra money. <laughs> what this meant in practice was that two American girls would raise their hands. A beat-up car, usually containing one or two enormous, terrifying, glowering, mobster-looking men in black leather jackets, would pull over and ask, where to? while swigging from a bottle of vodka. The American girls would decide whether the men were actually dangerous or just dangerous looking, like all Russians. The Russian-born American girl was the first to note that, so it's not xenophobic. <laughs> we made a rule that we would only get in a car that contained fewer than two terrifying-looking giants, because we reasoned that we could overpower one 300-pound Russian kidnapper, but two could get rapey. This all got less scary the more we did it, though, because inevitably the conversation with these gray-faced behemoths went something like this in Russian. Sasha, thanks for the ride. What's your name? Gray-faced behemoth. Vlad, where are you from? Sasha, Los Angeles. Gray-faced behemoth. Hollywood! And you're going to the Bolshoi tonight? Oh, he's remarkable. Oh, he made you weak. He goes on and on. He's very excited. 
Would you like a sip? Passing the bottle. <laughs> Looks thus kept being deceiving, which made me very grateful to be with a Russian speaker. Because before Sasha would open her mouth, every single person, person in Russia looked at us as though they were going to kill us like they just killed their favorite dog when they realized they couldn't feed it through the winter. <laughs> That's just what their faces look like, Sasha said to her mom one night. Then she would squeeze her mother's hand again. Anyway, we hitched a ride to the loud, dark club Oleg had chosen for a meeting place. I had spent the day telling myself that meeting up with a guy did not mean I had to hook up with him. We were just making local friends. Oleg showed up a few minutes after we ordered our vodka tonicas and kissed me three times on the cheeks. Right, left, right, the Russian way. What's important to understand about this custom is that you get your one cheek kissed, then your noses and lips and eyes brush past each other's on your way to the other cheek, and then you do the whole pass and brush routine yet another time on your way back to the first cheek, breathing each other in the whole time. The, so, the slower the pass from one cheek to the next, the more serious the greeting. It's a pretty great way to spice up those hard, gray, vodka, and snow-filled lives. Oleg's passes were crazy slow. Oleg immediately recognized a friend at the bar, Misha, a sexually dangerous-looking tattoo artist in his mid-30s. Sasha immediately recognized that she needed to get a closer look at Misha's tattoo sleeves. So my translator left Oleg and I alone to get to know each other. Oleg leaned over and screamed at me. It was very loud. I speak small of English. Fantastic, I screamed back. I'm kind of a talker and the thought of what we were gonna do if you couldn't communicate was sort of terrifying. So where, are you from Moscow? How do you know Misha? <laughs> Oleg looked at me, panicked, for one beat, two, three, and then he just kissed me. After the four of us spent some time dry humping to the spin doctors in Mambo number five, <laughs> Misha suggested we move the party back to his place, since Sasha was drunk enough to think that Misha was not too drunk to give Sasha her very first tattoo. We stumbled into a taxi with our bottles of vodka and champagne, a veritable stereotype of a crazy Russian night out, and drove for a very, very long time. It turned out that Misha lived with his parents in a housing project on the outskirts of Moscow. Misha's room was pretty small for four people trying to do terrible things to each other. And so Misha took Sasha for a 20-minute tour of the bathroom, leaving me and Oleg to his futon. Now, let's just all apologize to my new husband for a moment, right? Great job. Great job. Okay. Now... <laughs> Now, all day, when I wasn't thinking about how I absolutely was not going to cheat on my boyfriend, I had been harboring a very specific Oleg-related fantasy. It basically involved him teaching me how to say all of the parts of the body in Russian by kissing each part and then telling me the word for it, which I would then repeat and try to remember as he moved to kiss the next spot. Then I would do the same for him in English. It was really a very adorable fantasy. So after a day of this, I found myself on a futon with my Russian. And let's remember that I was 28 and had been with two people in the previous eight years. It had been a very long time since I had been with someone for the first time, and it hap hadn't happened very often. And Oleg and I could only communicate with our eyes and our bodies. And we communicated really effectively that way. <laughs> so everything was already fairly amazing when Oleg stopped doing something disgustingly wonderful, kissed the tip of my nose, and said, hook, nose, in Russian. He was doing it! 
delighted. I said, Hawk, then kissed the tip of his nose and said, Nose. All I repeated, a great student, Nose. Next was an ear, fingers, elbows. Crazy, right? Except it wasn't. I would eventually, via many other vacation romances, learn something. This always happens when you make love to someone who speaks another language. <laughs> always. It's crazy, but my fantasy apparently sprang from the fact that this is just a natural instinct for two people who cannot communicate and yet find themselves in the same room naked. <laughs> Sasha and Misha eventually returned, rumpled but smiling, for the second reckless portion of their evening together, the tattoo. My beautiful friend, fresh out of the Ivy League, the ultimate manifestation of the American dream, who had been saved from a life as just another angry-looking, prematurely aging Russian whose only way out of the country might have been as a mail-order bride. This young, promising woman pulled down her pants, <laughs> bent over a chair, and slurred at her new companion. Do whatever you want! <laughs> It turned out that what Misha wanted to do was to tattoo a large, misshapen infinity symbol made out of barbed wire on Sasha. It stretched across her entire lower back in a horizontal figure eight-ish. While Sasha got her tattoo, Alec and I used her to get to know each other. Sasha, ask him where he was born. Sasha, how do you say your skin makes me cry? On that couch, through Sasha's translation, Oleg and I realized that we were meant to find each other. First, we were born three weeks apart, in the same year. Crazy, right? <laughs> Second, we had both grown up during the Cold War, terrified that at any moment the bomb would be dropped on us from the other person's country. <laughs> Furthermore, Oleg had been raised in a tiny town in far eastern Russia, just across the sea from Japan. The only reason this town even existed was that it contained a top secret Russian military base built around the nuclear missile launcher that his father was in charge of operating and which was aimed at Los Angeles where I lived. In terror of attack by the Russians, I was practicing my duck and cover because of Oleg's father who didn't want to drop a bomb on me any more than I wanted to drop one on his fucking hot son. <laughs> now, again, this was just a few months after 9-11. The world was a scary, war-filled place. So it felt very natural to turn the sordid, naked things I was doing in Russia while my boyfriend slept in our bed in Los Angeles into an act of international peacemaking. <laughs> I was literally making love out of nothing at all. Love that would save our planet. <laughs> and that's how I used 9-11 to rationalize cheating. But at least I didn't get a tattoo. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, would anyone like to ask any questions about Russia or my sex life? Yes, Michael Thomas. Uh, well, I, I, it's, a, it's a mystery, obviously. She's uh, uh, not here, and uh, she's, she's undercover, so I just I can't get into that. But uh, yes, she has it. <laughs> and when she reaches over to pick up her baby and I see it, it gives me a lot of joy. <laughs> any other cover? Any other? Anything else there? Um, okay, now, uh, things we can do are we can have some question-answer talk about writing or TV or travel, or I can read a little more. Show of hands for a question-answer talk. Read a little more. 
Oh, okay. Marie Lomar. Sorry, Rob, it's Brazil. <laughs> it's only, this I'm going to tell you, though, to hopefully make you buy the book, because it's only the cleaner part of the Brazil chapter. Mm-hmm, exactly, exactly. Um, oh. People I haven't seen in 20 years. This is exciting. Okay, so here we are in Brazil. Uh, it's a little shortened piece of it. All right, the name of the chapter is Brazilians uh, Skip Second and Steal Third. <laughs> I have taken a lot of trips that changed me, that taught me things about myself or the world, profound things. Nothing profound happened in Brazil. Brazil was just freaking fun, all id as deep as a puddle. A married friend recently described his trip to Brazil thusly. You'd be sitting on the beach, and you'd spot the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. But because the beach was crowded, she'd keep getting blocked by the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. <laughs> my cousin Janie, Janie, want to raise your hand there? Over there, she's pretty cute. My cousin Janie, my friend Piper, and I were having dinner on the beach when my first Brazilian boyfriend walked by. There were two. It's slutty, guys, it's slutty. Appearance-wise, he fell directly in my sweet spot with a white-toothed, naughty smile and the coloring of a conquistador. So when he walked by, he caught my eye. He caught me being caught, and he walked right over. <laughs> a couple of years earlier, my old crush, Ferris Bueller, fake name, I don't think he's here tonight, uh, took a posse of people to Rio for New Year's. He told me that a mysterious phenomenon kept happening. He and our equally charismatic male friends would enter a bar and quickly round up several gorgeous Brazilian women. But then something strange would occur. After about 20 minutes of happy drinking and flirting, the women would wander off, meet other men, and within minutes, make out with them. Night after night, my American friends would watch this happen, then finally asked a Brazilian woman why she thought they kept striking out. Well, had you kissed the girls before they wandered off, she asked. No, we'd only been talking for a few minutes, they said. The Brazilian girl laughed. In Brazil, if a guy hasn't grabbed you and kissed you within a few minutes, he isn't interested. That's why the girls all moved on. I could not tell this story to Cristiano because he didn't speak English. But he still managed to wordlessly confirm that this is indeed how Brazilian men operate. With one addendum. They don't just kiss you, they run the bases right there in public, minutes after meeting you. And another surprise, they don't go in order. <laughs> Brazilians are not into boobs. That is the conclusion that my travel partners and I came to after several experiences over the course of our three weeks. Maybe when you live in the country that invented the thong, you spend enough time staring at asses that you forget to look anywhere else. How this comes into play for, say, an American girl, making out with a Brazilian conquistador in a beach bar, is that within about five minutes, his hands leave her face, bypass the next universally accepted playground, and go straight down her pants, which is just surprising enough to work. <laughs> a brief digression into the notion of bases. I found being single in my 30s very confusing on a few fronts. How to pace things physically was one of the most perplexing. The dilemma as I saw it was this. I am not a slut in the United States of America. While the Christian adjacent I became on international adventures didn't worry much about curtailing home runs, at home I didn't want to sleep with everyone I kissed. Maybe I wanted to get to know the guy better first. Maybe I was dating multiple people and I find it too emotionally confusing to sleep with more than one person at a time. 
So I needed to sometimes say no. And yet it felt ridiculous to be a grown woman drawing lines in the sand of her body. You can touch me here, but not here, felt just too high school. So how to balance these two conflicting needs. I came up with a new and improved system of bases after a conversation with a gay friend who had told me that the gay base system is dramatically different from the straight. <laughs> In his world, first base was a blowjob, second was anal, third involved a third, and a home run was pretty complicated but probably involved a swing and a go-go dancer. <laughs> Obviously these definitions don't apply to every gay man, but the takeaway is certainly that things get very advanced very quickly when women are not involved. Much like with other male-on-male -male activities, like say war, the escalation is fast and furious and often involves bleeding. <laughs> As a side note, Lesbian bases, I've been told, involve a lot of baths and toys at first and second bases, and buying a house and building a compost garden together as you round third. <laughs> a home run is when you've stopped having sex altogether and start a book club. Anyway, the gay bases gave me the idea for a new set of bases for grown-up ladies who are struggling with being sexually evolved adults but do not want to become the village bicycle. My new, by the way, uh, the first time I heard that term was when I was uh, Googling Alyssa Milano because I had to do a TV show with her, and someone called her the Dodgers Village Bicycle, which gave me joy. Uh, okay, back to this. Uh, my new bases involved not which part of your body was being touched with what, but where geographically the physical intimacy was taking place. So, anything that happens in public, say in a car or on a front porch, was first base. Anything that happened inside one's house, on one's couch, kitchen counter, dining room floor, was second. Move into the bedroom and you're at third. Sleep over and that's a home run. The system is meaningful, I think, because instead of giving away parts of your body like oranges at mile markers in a marathon, intimacy progresses based on how far into your house and your life you want to let your partner get. That seemed like an important distinction. So, yes, if you want to screw on the front porch, you can still say you stopped at first base. Good, right? <laughs> anyway, Christianu skipped high school second and went straight to high school third that first night, right there in that beachfront bar, which in grown-up lady bases is still just first. I glanced around, embarrassed at the hundreds of other people, but they were so focused on getting their own hands down each other's pants that they weren't giving us a second look. Emma and Kate were learning all of the same lessons about base dealing elsewhere in the bar, and it was a small miracle that we ultimately made it back to our hotel without any ball players in tow. I told Cristiano we'd be going to another island in the morning if he wanted to come with and maybe fall in love for a few days. He couldn't afford the boat trip though, and so we said goodbye 20 or 30 times, and then I took his hands out of my pants and went home to my eco-resort like a lady. <laughs> So those are some two funny stories. There's some stuff in there that's deep, though, guys, and talks about other cultures in a really interesting way. Uh, but those aren't two of them. Does anybody have any questions they want to ask? Yeah. Um, you mentioned you had an evil stepmother. Mm. Evil how? Uh, evil stepmother she asked about. Uh, the general gist was she did that thing where she married my dad and kind of made him choose between uh, me or her. And uh, so he chose her. 
And so I was, you know, excluded for a long time. And they started having babies, and she kept me out of their lives for a long time. And eventually, I kind of, you know, she sued, did all kinds of crazy, awful things. But basically, you know, I kind of lost my dad about when I went to college. Was sort of how that worked. She sued. She, you know, got my uh, dad to sue my mom to get out of pain for my college and spread lies to keep that from happening. You know, a lot like ugly things. Uh, so, and I was an only child until I was 18, and now I'm one of seven. Uh, so that changed. Um, but it was, it basically, my experience of marriage was that my parents were happily married for 18 years. Let's say, they were married for 18 years. They were happily married for a lot of it, or at least in love, if not always happy. There was a lot of dancing in the kitchen and locked doors on Saturday mornings. And so, and then it imploded because my mom was an international corporate lawyer who had, that's where I get my wanderlust. And, uh, and my dad was a homebody who wanted to sit on the couch. And they just got married young and grew away from each other. And so that was kind of where I learned the lesson that if you grow in a marriage, it will end. And that if you uh, kind of want to explore, you have to leave the person that you're with. And it, so that sense of marriage is like a stone on your chest and a limiter got in there early. I had my mom remarried a wonderful man who was this fantastic step-parent and probably the reason that I was open to marrying somebody with two kids because our relationship was so good. So um, it ultimately was, uh, I think, taught me a lot about who I want to be as a, as a step-parent and it, it worked out well. Uh, uh, but yeah, she wasn't that great. And writing about her has not been, like, I'm starting to get the first, I talked to my dad today, he's 200 pages into the book. And, uh, yeah. And, but he's pretty great. He's, he's pretty great about it. And he said amazing things. He said the same thing about my wedding. He said that both things made him, uh, made him feel like he understood me better and knew me better and that he felt like he, reading about what happened with the divorce and with the incidents with my stepmother, uh, he felt like I did it accurately, and he felt like uh, it was fair, and he, he felt like he was giving him closure to relive it and remember how it laid out. You know, my step-siblings, who's lost their mother, don't love it that much, but, you know, apparently my stepsister was upset about it and bought five copies for her friends. So I think that we're, it's going to start conversations. There's d different ways to look at the dead, right? You can whitewash who they were and feel respectful, and that side of my family is... Filipino Catholic, and that's what they do. Um, and it's not really what I do, and so I'm hoping that eventually the truth will bring us all closer too. But it's not a surprise. I've talked to all the kids about my relationship with their mother and and how I want to do things differently with my stepkids. So I think that you know, writing a memoir is bringing it brings a lot of good and a lot of bad. It's a naked thing to do. Um, and it got more naked than I thought it was going to be. I sat down to write funny stories, you know. Not even, not even physically naked. Like the naked, like for me, writing about naked stuff, I have no sense of privacy, no big deal. But the, uh, the emotionally naked stuff that my editor insisted everybody wanted to know, um, because I'm a woman and I feel like, you know, men can be Chuck Klosterman or David Sedaris and write funny stories and nobody wants them to, to tell some sort of life lesson that they should learn from. There is something about being a woman um, that people expect you to have learned something really profound uh, and learned it a lot quicker than I learned it and um, and and so you know I was kind of pushed to dig in a little further than I even wanted to which is a kind of still not far enough for some people I guess but I'm glad I did it I think it will uh, you know it, it lays the record straight 
which was never a secret to anybody, but it seems like it's going to be okay. It's amazing to hear so much depth and so much humor in one conversation. If you were running the conversation in America right now, maybe we wouldn't have people shooting each other. Wow, guys. I could solve gun violence with my sex stories. This is exciting. Thanks. <laughs> Write that on Amazon. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. Did uh, your sitcom's uh, writing style inform the final edit of the book of how you, uh, how you brought things together? Uh, it probably is in me, right? The, that, I mean, the joy of the book was that you don't have the structure that you have as a TV or a movie writer. You don't have to hit certain things at certain pages, and you can go off on a tangent and meander and not worry and get to take that ride. So that was the fun of writing it. But certainly that desire to, like, it's been too long without a laugh, you know, find the, you know, go go take the pass through the book. Just looking to add ten laughs um, is a sitcom skill, and you know, kind of coming around to a little lesson at the end of every chapter is very sitcom skilly um, and very natural for me. Um, so I think that it definitely helps. It helps you look at each sentence and try to make it a little bit punchier, a little bit more fun to read. Um, now. So yeah, it probably affected it. Yeah, your writing just sounded like it had a personal rhythm there too, as you read it, as you read those two stories. Well, good. I'm glad. Yeah, you sitcom writers are dialogue writers. You know, an action line for us is somebody gets up and walks across the room and sits down, and they talk for four more pages. So you you get very good at uh, voices, and you know because we usually are working on somebody else's show that they created with characters that they created. The the gig is knowing how to mimic other voices that other people have created and kept getting an ear for what it is and hearing it. So I think that helped a lot in writing the people that I don't remember exactly what they said, but kind of the rhythm of how they spoke or what kinds of things they were saying st stick in my head. And I think the dialogue writing helps that. Yeah. 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 Uh, any particular humorists or travel writers who influenced this while you were writing the book? I love David Sedaris I, all the time. Um, Pam Houston is a really great uh, memoir. You know, she calls her stuff novels, but they're clearly journals, right? Um, she, even her character is named Pam always, but she still calls it a novel, which my mom would have been so happy if I had done. Um, <laughs> she wanted me to so bad. Um, but I love her, and she, her writing is like almost little snapshots, like sometimes little poems almost of places. Um, and... Uh, uh, who else have I been reading lately? You know, I've read a lot of memoirs, a lot of comedians, um, especially comedy writers who write about the business, tend to not, you know, they might get kind of naked, naked, but not dig too much into, uh, like, personal issues. I did a reading last week with Rachel Dratch in New York, and her book actually covers, like, a lot of the same themes as mine, aside from the travel, but the girls in comedy and dating terrible people and, you know, staying single much longer than everyone else. And then she had a surprise pregnancy at 44. Um, and so we talked about a lot of those things. And I thought she did a, she did a good job, I thought, of talking about career uh, downfalls. When she was like, oh, you were so much more honest about personal things than I was willing to be. And I admire that. And I was so, uh, uh, I admired how much she was able to write about 
her career sort of not taking off after SNL the way she thought it would. And, you know, the, you, you're, there's such a fear. I wrote about a couple of work disasters in here, and I, those were the ones that I, like, sent to my agent and said, is this going to keep me from getting work? You know, and, and worried that people would read and say, oh, she's a failure. People have fired her. People have, people have not picked her up after this or that. And, you know, writing about work was the hardest for me, which made, when I was talking to Rachel, it made me go, God, are my priorities really out of whack? That I <laughs> feel totally fine airing all of my family uh, dirty laundry, but I don't want to write about what Steve McPherson did. Like, it's a little messed up. <laughs> <laughs> but he's super powerful, guys, and my stepmother's dead. What can she do? <laughs> it's respectful, right? <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah? Oh, I'm a little confused. When you said you, when you realized you were feeling naked for the first time, did you mean after the fact or as you were writing? I guess it was as I was, uh, I would send in chapters to the editor and she would sort of say, dig more here. We want to know more about why you feel this way here. And a lot of it was insecurity, you know. Uh, there's that feeling of like, I don't want to bore people because I'm not, a historic figure. I'm not a famous person. You know, what is interesting about my life? Why do you want to know about why I have fears of marriage? You know, you have friends to talk to about their fears of marriage. Why do you need to hear mine? And um, so it was, it was, I was really insecure about, about digging into stuff that wasn't rat-a-tat-tat funny stories. Because um, that's my comfortable space. But that surprised me because I, get, I mean, you're obviously you're a successful writer, so you're never an actor because that's the first thing you learn. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, I don't act. It's so scary. That's the first thing you learn. Yeah, yeah. No, it, in uh, comedy rooms, the, fir the first thing you learn is to make fun of your... Of things that would make you feel naked, like the the approaches you go in and like say everything that's wrong with you the first day, so that uh, you know nobody else will say it and make you cry. That's sort of <laughs> that's sort of the comic approach, but never in a real way until you get to know each other well enough. You know, it's a it's a scary place those rooms. And it led you to rewrite a chapter or rewrite heavily. Yeah, I you know dug and added and uh, and went to therapy. I would go to therapy with my chapters sometimes and. <laughs> I swear to God, I had my therapist read the memoir and give me notes. I did that. That's a crazy LA girl thing to do. <laughs> did that. Um, but there were there were times when I was like, wow, this wasn't that great what I did here. I don't feel that great about it. This was not really very cool. And you know, you have to. You know, I wrote something about how, as a TV writer, the note you get most often from TV executives that we all bemoan constantly is make your main character more likable. <laughs> and we hate it and we talk about Archie Bunker and how Archie Bunker was a racist and he but he summed up a viewpoint in America at the time and he was lovable anyway and you gotta have flawed people and make it interesting and real and you got we scream and yell and bang our heads, right? And then I wrote a book where the main character was me. And then I really wanted the main character to be super likable. <laughs> and Part of that was my ego, and part of that, I think, is, you know, if you're reading a memoir and you turn on the main character, you put the book down. Like, you don't hate, you don't like her anymore, you don't want to read anymore. And so I did have to also figure out how to feel okay about some of the choices I made um, and, and own 
that they were flaws and that they were bad kind of human missteps, um, but that it was okay and I wasn't a bad person. And so I would literally go to the therapist and I would talk through it and she would tell me why it was okay and I would take notes on my phone <laughs> and, um, and then I would go and write the chapter and at the end of it all I gave it all to her just to kind of say like, if you just like heard this person in front of you, what would you quietly think to yourself? I know, and, and did I get the emotional arc? Right, and of course she's my therapist, so she just said super nice stuff. <laughs> but it made me feel great. Because <laughs> she's so good at her job. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Is there a particular trip or a particular experience on a trip that you had that affected your television writing? <sighs> Let me think. Television writing in particular. I mean, definitely pieces from the trips have worked their way into a lot of different shows. I mean, Robin on How I Met Your Mother has an Argentine boyfriend she brought back, and that was from Argentina, my Argentina trips. Um, uh, it mostly just, like, fueled me for being home. You know, it was, I would kind of come back to a room and feel like, a la how much fun you get made of in a writer's room. Being single was a really fun joke point for the boys to go to, right? Like, you, there is no mercy. Like, you are a day out of the six-year relationship with your first love, and you're having a piece of pizza, and they're like, Kristen, you're single now. Are you sure you should have that pizza? How are you going to find love again? I mean, really. It was, it was it, you know, and, and they loved to go to the You're Going to Die Alone Well. And, you know, you, you, like, there, I was so against... Bridget Jones as an archetype and, you know, as me in particular, and in a room full of mostly boys all the time, hearing them talk all about all of the girls who are constantly trying to rope them into marriage and children and all the things. There was this fear of being a girl, fear of being a single girl they could make fun of. Um, a lot of, you know, in some ways, fear of looking, you know, sad and desperate. And so the travels and who, the fact that I would, you know, especially traveling alone, which I feel like changes you in a way that traveling with friends and traveling with a significant other just doesn't. Um, and gives, especially as a woman, gives you this confidence that you can go to another country alone, not know anybody, have a great time, be safe, make friends, learn a language, learn how to dance, have a great experience, come home. It changed the way I walked into a writer's room. It changed the way I went to a date at Starbucks. It changed the way I dealt with my mother. It changed everything. And like the sense of confidence from traveling alone as a woman, I feel like, is such an important thing. So it's really more just, tra you know, the, the trips kind of fed me and made me feel like I knew who I was and that uh, it wasn't a sad thing that I was single. It was like, and that probably kept me fighting marriage longer than I would have deeper into the age went past when most people understood why I was still running away from it, was I embraced it so much that there was this like, I get to live a life you don't get to live. Like, I'm not giving this up. This is great. And, and so I, it was a little fake it till you make it. And then once I found it, I was like, oh, this is really, really good. And then it was only after several years that I kind of was on a beach in New Zealand going, there's been like a lot of beautiful beaches and a lot of like handsome men on boats and a lot of like waterfalls. And maybe it would be nice to actually share this. This experience has been checked off. And I, I've proved to myself that I can do it alone. And now I can put it aside. Um, so that was sort of my experience. Yeah? In my experience, traveling alone wasn't always as romantic and exciting and enriching as yours. Um, How come? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I was the one. 
younger and I didn't even ask girls out. I don't know. But there wasn't a significant lonely portion of it. Like you're, you're on a beach by yourself in New Zealand thinking, huh? Oh. No. No, I mean, there, yes, there, especially in New Zealand, there were, I remember like staying in the end of the road in this rainy town, there's no people anywhere, I'm in this haunted hotel, I'm the only person staying there, it's like rooms above a restaurant, it's all of the, the, the spookily, it's like all rooms and then a bathroom at the end, and they left all of the doors open so you could see that you're really the only person there, and they like... <laughs> let you in and they're like have a nice night we're going across town to sleep and then they leave the building and there's the empty black restaurant under you and you see all the empty rooms and you're they lock the door behind them and you're locked in you're like well this is a horror movie now and i'm terrified and uh here i am but i remember that particular night that was one night where i was like this isn't fun i don't like this um i remember getting on freaking social media and putting on Facebook, I am alone at the end of a road in New Zealand. No one's here. And like within 30 seconds, there were like 50 mommies who were like, I'll change you, my fucking kids, it's Passover, I'm with your mother, God, uh, like, like all these people. And immediately I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, okay. Like this is, I'm lucky, I'm lucky, I'm lucky, remember? And you know, that, was, that happened a million times, right? Where the, the people whose lives I was trying to figure out if I ever could have, because I did want a family someday, but I just kept not wanting it. You know, I, they would want my life for a minute, and I would want their life for a minute. And this book follows a lot of my girls through their own lives as they were coming on trips with me, and then leaving me for husbands, and having babies, and then something coming back. Sometimes coming back because they got divorced, and going on another trip or two, and then getting married again before I did it once, and you know, and 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 their lives are kind of covered in the book a little bit too, and their their stories and how how uh, I saw their experiences and the choices they were making really informed mine a lot. Um, so yeah, there were certainly moments, but I have tips. For example. You always go, if you're alone, you always go on a day tour of some sort with like a group of people to go see a thing for the day. And then you ask, because the hardest part is nighttime. And you find friends during the day and you say, what are you doing for dinner or drinks? And they usually want to do stuff with you. It's, I think, easier as a woman because everyone's afraid you're going to get raped. So they're like, you're alone? Come to dinner. <laughs> so that happens a lot. Um, and then I, I took Spanish classes and met other travelers who were traveling alone or um, took tango classes and met them that way or, um, yeah, you know, joined a group walking hut to hut for six days and you meet people. It sounds like the comedic writers and essayists were much more influences. Did guys like uh, Paul Theroux I love him, and, and on Patagonia, if you ever read Bruce Troutman, like that's the first book I felt like that really wrote about travel, um, as for, uh, summed up a trip based not on what places that they saw or what you know or what uh, kind of monuments were being seen, but what people they ran and he ran into on the road. And I read Pat on Patagonia in Patagonia, you know, in my Spanish teacher's bed above the queso shop while the wind blew the windows. And um, and it was all about the little guy at the end of the road that he met and the people who brought him in for cheese and um, that. So I love that that writing about the people and the little stories. I feel like is the way you get a good vibe of a place. Pam Houston does that really well too. I think too. I also really liked if anybody ever read, uh, read Shutter Babe, this book by uh, Deborah Copagan Kagan. I think is her name, and she was a um, photojournalist in like war torn countries. And she, it's sort of photojournalism, Sex the City. Like you kind of come in on her on the back of a 
truck in Afghanistan when she's being taken by the Mujahideen into the mountains and she's like got her period and is talking about the French guy she had sex with the night before and you like cover the photojournalist and you cover kind of each each chapter and you're like in Libya but there was the Italian guy and she's kind of covers all of the the people both in her photojournalism experiences and in these romances that she's happening having as she goes around and in the you know the fun of a romance with a local is they bring you to their birthday parties and their friend, mom's house and their favorite restaurants and you get the tour of the city that you wouldn't get otherwise, right? So she writes a lot about that too, which I like. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular reader in mind? Do you have a person in your head when you're writing, like who, like when you, so you're kind of talking to You. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was the answer. Yeah, it's you. Okay. It's you. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh, you talked about when you were 26 and the first time you traveled after you and your first boyfriend broke uh, mm -hmm. up you were in Amsterdam and you took ecstasy. Mm -hmm. how, much did, how much did drugs influence a lot of your travels? And, uh, uh -huh. It's kind of it's, it's something that interests me with humorous. <laughs> it's hard to ignore it sometimes. It's hard to ignore. I mean, I my experience with drugs was my... Uh, my dad's very good advice from a wild alcoholic, I will say, was not to not drink and do drugs and have sex, but to wait. To like take a minute and watch my friends and see what they did and see what they did wrong and see what terrible things happened and what good things happened and to learn lessons and then decide what I was going to try going forward. And I didn't decide to do that, but I did it. Like I really, you know, tried mushrooms once in college, smoked pot a couple times, like really didn't try things. And I was 26 in Amsterdam and single for the first time when the travel experience was disintegrating greatly. I went with my friend Paula on a girl trip and then she brought her boyfriend and then I was going to be the third wheel so he brought his awful friend who like had been in jail for selling drugs and had blue hair and rodent eyes and everyone's like oh you're getting together with Dave. I'm like no I'm not getting <laughs> together with Dave. And I was heartbroken from a big breakup. And we were all about to kill each other for a variety of reasons on this trip. And so he brought out ecstasy. And because he was a drug addict, he knew that what we needed was, he called it, a chemical bridge back to friendship. <laughs> and he was right. And it was a wonderful night. And we all fell in love again. And I was a better person for about probably two weeks, I would say. I think it lasted. And that is an amazing thing. Probably done ecstasy six times in my life, right? But I do think it made me a better person. I do think that it made me less judgmental for a couple of weeks, much like a good trip does. Um, and uh, I'm glad I experienced it. I think that, that anybody who's never had one sip of anything or any tried one thing of anything, I always distrust a little bit. Because I'm like, what are you afraid of letting go? There's something in you you're afraid of letting out, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe they have a terrible tragedy in their life that involved drugs and alcohol, and I shouldn't judge. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm glad, you know, I've dabbled a, few, a handful of times in a few things. Um, and, and I'm glad I did. Those were interesting experiences. But... Uh, they were pretty limited. Mm -hmm. From someone who does not limit things. <laughs> um, did you change the names of the book? <laughs> or to protect them from themselves? Are there are limitations now that they're all serious people who have you know, I changed like probably 98% of the names um, for those various reasons. Yeah, but I also gave like my kind of six closest girls and my mother 
the chapters that they were in with a red pen and let them kind of scribble on anything they wanted to scribble. And most people were pretty were pretty uh, hands off on it. Um, Almost entirely, really. Uh, I had to leave. There was, you know, Juan, Father Juan has three chapters. He's my, like, same time next year Argentine boyfriend who was, like, the most important relationship in the book. And there's a lot of good Juan wordplay. There's, like, another Juan bites the dust. <laughs> Is he the Juan? You know, that kind of thing. One more time with feeling. These are great chapter titles that you just can't be giving up. So he has the same name. At random, there were a couple of other names that I left. I don't know why, kind of, you know, not on purpose. But I did, uh, last week when the book came out, I did a uh, select all Google Gmail blast, which brought back some interesting responses from some people. Like, ah, so many years, 12 years, and remember me, Kike, de Barcelona. You know, are you writer? Like, that happened. Um, and there was, there was a like, oh, am I in that? And I was about to say no, and then I realized, oh, he is. And, but I was about to say, oh, but your name has changed. And then I realized it wasn't. So I don't want to write these things down for legal reasons. But I, I don't know why I wasn't 100% on the name changing. I was close. Yeah, there's there's so few wands. <laughs> it's gonna be clear. It's gonna be clear. Now he's he's I've outed him. Yeah. What? I've just been through three wands. Oh, you have. <laughs> the three wands. Mm. Nine, none of them were the one. In, the, in this neighborhood. Mm. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, one more question, guys. Yes, Mary Lyle. When are you going to Antarctica? <sighs> That's the real question, right? Rob Wright has one more country to get to. And, uh, and the, the, the great end of the story, it's a, it's a spoiler, but I guess I've told you I'm married already, so it's all right. Um, the end of the story was that uh, I, I wrote a few chapters of this book and shopped that and sold it and then wrote the book. And I was dating Rob for just a little while when uh, that was about to happen. And I gave him the chapters and said, are you comfortable with this? It's a lot. I'm going to give you the ability to say, no, thank you. Please don't put that out in the world. And he took it to a bar, and uh, he got a drink, and he read it, and he was very supportive. So that was great. Um, but after he read it, he said, you know, it inspired me, your book. Made me feel, and he was newly divorced after 14 years with two kids. He's like, you know, it made me feel like I really want to have a lot more international adventures. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> That is the last person I want to inspire to have sexy single travel adventures. But then he said, you know, I really want to have been on all seven continents before I have another baby. And so uh, I was like, well, that's a great end. She doesn't have to stay home to have love and family. She has to hit the road again, but with a man or three, three dudes in tow. And I told my mother this great ending that he'd given me to my life and my book. And she was like, hmm, that's great. And then, like a month later, it was Christmas, and she said, for Christmas, I would like to give you and Rob a trip anywhere in the world he has never been. <laughs> and she was trying to buy a grandbaby. So we went to Asia. It was lovely, Thailand and Cambodia. <laughs> there you go. So I'll be signing books now. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.